Thank you, Les. I'm going to turn back in the book of Acts this morning to chapter 1 as we consider what it means to be an authentic church. Today, we, as Glenn mentioned, we're going to talk about the supernatural church. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 3. Speaking about Jesus here, it says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait For the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of God. And God, we come to you this morning opening your word because we trust in it and we trust in you. We want to honor you this morning, Lord, by turning our attention not to the thoughts of, of people, but to your thoughts, to your book, to your words. We're inviting, Lord, that your spirit would put into practice today this very thing we're discussing, the supernatural power of God, how we need you to be here, to be present, to be at work in our stubborn hearts, Lord. We ask you to revive us, to change us, to transform us. And Lord, would you receive all the glory as you do so? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want us this morning to consider... These four words, which I've read, and you've read with me from these verses in Acts chapter 1. We're going to think about the word wait, and the word baptized, and the word power, and then finally, the word witnesses. You notice there that as Jesus was appearing to his disciples, and can you imagine, this was the greatest Bible college or seminary training anyone could ever receive in these 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, when he was appearing to his disciples and explaining to them, helping helping them understand the kingdom of God, helping them make the connections between the Old Testament and this New Testament, which was unfolding, and giving them understanding so that they could teach others. And in that time, he gives them a command. Notice in verse 4, it's a command. And the command is, do not leave Jerusalem, But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So this is interesting. He's already given them, I assume by this point, the Great Commission, which is go and make disciples of all nations. And we're going to see the same command here in verse 8, where he's going to tell them to begin in Jerusalem and then out to the nation of Judea and then to the neighboring nation of Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Of course, this is the heart of God. 
The God who created all these places and all of these nations and all of these peoples, his heart is that his message would go out. But here the command is given not to go out, but to wait. I find that very fascinating. Jesus has prepared his disciples for this moment when they, when they would go and take on this monumental task of spreading the good news around the globe. But the first command was, not yet. And you have to wait. And I wonder if for the rest of their days, and, and I really believe this is meant to be a powerful message to us as well, that even though we understand in this moment that we are called to go, we are not called to go on our own. We are not called to go in our own strength or in our own power. And so for these believers, as they're awaiting this gift, which we're going to consider in just a moment, the command is, you don't go, no, not until you've received this gift that I have told you about. Of course, it is the gift, as we see here, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who we believe to be one of those members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly united in perfect loving relationship, all fully divine, and yet in these three distinct persons. In fact, the Bible begins with a reference to the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? We read there in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We all know that verse, or most of us do, many of us do. Then it says that the earth is without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered on the surface of the waters. What does that mean, and why is that there? I mean, there's really no explanation to that. And why is the Holy Spirit... And I get the impression that the Holy Spirit is, is waiting. He's, he's, he's ready to unleash the power of God in the world and of course originally that power would be displayed through his creation but I I can almost hear and sense the Holy Spirit in this moment between the ascension of Jesus and the and the coming of the Holy Spirit he is just he's waiting to unleash not in creation not in original creation now in new creation in God's redemptive work in the world and in his people. Notice what Jesus says as he gives this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. And he says, you have heard me speak about. You've heard me speak about this gift. Now one of the most beautiful places where Jesus spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit is in the Gospel of John. Uh, Sometimes we call it the upper room discourse or those Several chapters where Jesus first teaches his disciples in John 13, 14, 15, 16, then in chapter 17, where he prays for his disciples. But there are some astounding things that Jesus says in these chapters about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So let me show you a couple of these. I have always found these verses absolutely astounding. First of all, chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, I t- truly. Like, believe me, I'm telling you the truth. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. What? Jesus, the one who walked on water, the one who fed thousands with a meal, the one who could raise the dead, and now he's telling his 
followers, you're going to do even greater works. You're going to do the works that I do. And why is it? It's because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the first mentions of the Holy Spirit, who in the Greek language is described as a paraclete. And a paraclete, in fact, our English Bibles have trouble translating this. So some Bibles call the paraclete uh, a helper. Some Bibles call the paraclete or translate the word counselor, some comforter. And all of those concepts are true. A paraclete is the one who comes alongside to help us, to walk with us, to, to be there for us. And the first mention is that Jesus makes this promise that I will send you another paraclete. He didn't say, I'm going to send you a paraclete. He said, I'm going to send you another one. And in fact, the word he used means another of the same kind. And what the reference is here is that even though he's leaving, because that's one of the first things they talked about in the upper room, is I'm leaving. John 13, John 14, remember that? I go to prepare a place for you, but I'll come again. And the disciples say, well, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. Tell us the way. So the first thing is I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you another comforter, another helper of the same kind, meaning he's going to be like me. The same kind of helper and comforter that I have been to you, my followers, the Holy Spirit is going to be. And then we see this. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to do the works I've been doing. You're going to do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, that's a, a strange phrase. The, this verse helps us understand that. Uh, in other words, Jesus says, I can't send the Spirit, I can't unleash the Holy Spirit upon you until I first go to the Father. Now, we don't understand why. Is there some theological reason why Jesus had to go before the Spirit comes? Obviously, there was. I can't tell you what that, what, what that reason is. But this is the explanation. I'm going away, and notice what he says here. It is for your good. The New King James Version says, it's to your advantage that, I get, that I'm going away. Unless I go, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That's reference to the Holy Spirit. How do you compute that? I, I have no idea how to compute these words. That it is better for me, according to Jesus, it's to my advantage, it's for my good that he left. Imagine being Peter, James, John, all of the disciples, and hear him say these words, and they're grieved, and they're deeply concerned. That's why he said in John 14:1, don't let your hearts be troubled. They were troubled. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. But he can also say, you're actually better off if I leave. Because if I leave, I'm going to send the advocate. Can you imagine? What it means is this. As, as much as perhaps all of us long, wish somehow we could have walked when Jesus walked, we could have seen his miracles, we could have been in his, his inner circle, we wish that we could have had that experience. And we wish maybe we could, hopefully, we, we could have that experience. I mean, don't we wish we could have Jesus with us now? And what Jesus says to us is actually, no, you don't realize you're better off now for me to be in heaven with the Father 
and for you to have the Holy Spirit. Folks, I mean, this is the whole point this morning as we think about an authentic church being a supernatural church. And I think what's happened in our day in, in churches like ours is, you know, we, we've all heard stories about churches that believe in signs and wonders. We might call them uh, charismatic churches, for example. And we have tended to think negatively about those churches. And sometimes we've heard stories, or maybe we've, and I have, we've seen stories and events uh, where that kind of expectation is abused. But what's happened is, for, for people like us and churches like ours, we have swung so far away from any expectation of the supernatural that now we are in an extremely unhealthy place where we do not understand what God intends for us right here, right now, in, in, in that he gave us this Holy Spirit he unleashed the Holy Spirit, not just on those first disciples, but all of us. Do you believe this? It is better for me and for you to have the Holy Spirit indwell me than to have Jesus beside me. It is better. We, we are better off to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us than to have Jesus beside us. That is mind-blowing. Now, won't it be wonderful when we get to eternity and we get to have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the unity of all of us together with them will be wonderful in the extreme. But for now, we take a lesson from Jesus here. He said, wait. Go and impact the world with the gospel but do not go alone we go in the strength of God and in the presence of his Holy Spirit so we move to this second word considered the word wait now we consider the word baptized notice verse 5 John baptized with water but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit so now we have this word baptism which is used in two important ways in the Bible and and here, uh, both of these ways are being mingled together in verse 5. Tend, we tend to think of baptism as that thing that happens with water. Uh, Jesus makes reference to John the Baptist, who preached a, uh, sermons of repentance, and then when people repented, he'd invite them down into the water, and he'd baptize them as a symbol of their repentance. So to be baptized was to go down into the river with John, and then he would place you under the water, and uh, I think in most cases, he pulled you back out again. And it was a symbol of repentance. It was, you, you have died to that old way of life. That old sinful way that you used to live is gone. We, it's washed away and now we're coming up new. With a new, a new approach to life. And then of course in Christianity we take that even further. Because now this symbolism of, of baptism, of going down into the water, coming back out. First of all, symbolizes what Jesus did so that we could be saved. He died and went down into the grave but then rose again for our salvation which is exactly what happens to us baptism symbolizes what happens to a genuine believer we die to our old self we're buried with Christ and then we're resurrected with Christ and we literally have this new life the life of God the life of Jesus <clears throat> indwelling us so baptism means that physical act that we do, not to, get, not to save people, but it symbolizes salvation. 
But then there's this other way that the word baptism is used in the New Testament, and here's one of the most important examples from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church, who, by the way, had lots of issues. If we were thinking of an authentic church, we probably wouldn't think of the Corinthian church. But nevertheless, look what Paul says to them. Recognizing that they are truly saved, they're true believers, he says, we were all baptized by one spirit so so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the spirit to drink. So here's where we understand that this promise of the Holy Spirit and the unleashing of the Holy Spirit wasn't just to the disciples of Jesus, but it was meant for and is experienced by all genuine believers. Yeah, even the Corinthian believers. If the Corinthian believers got the Holy Spirit, there's hope for me. Well, actually, that's the promise of the Bible. To be saved is to be immersed into the Holy Spirit. It's like... It's like we're dunked into, and then notice we also drink the Spirit. It's like being a cucumber in the pickle brine. We're in the jar, we're in the brine, and the brine is in us. And that's what happens when you are saved, right? So folks, we understand here at Wallenstein Bible Chapel, we are not looking for a religious experience. We're not looking for you to join our church and become a member of the church, because if you're a member, and if you're in this denomination, or if you're in this church, then you get your check mark and you get to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is we're all sinners. We're lost and desperately in danger of God's wrath because of our sin and rebellion against Him. But God has made a way of salvation, and the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. He gave His life. He died for us. He shed His blood uh, as a substitution for our sins. And then when we repent and we trust in Jesus... We are baptized into the very life of God in the Holy Spirit and the Spirit in us. That's what we believe at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. Praise God. That is our only hope. There is no hope for us. That's why the disciples were to wait. They couldn't leave Jerusalem. Don't get started on the Great Commission because you are powerless aside from the life and the power of God within you. We're not looking to raise up an army of religious people who do religious things in their own strength. That is dead religion. But in Christianity, we have the very life of God. We get baptized into it, and it gets baptized into us. So Jesus says, you need to wait for this. This is going to be good. This is going to make all the difference when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are baptized into his very life and his life is baptized into you, that's when the power of God will be unleashed. That's when we can begin to turn this world upside down. So the understanding of Scripture is every true believer has the Holy Spirit. Every genuine believer has been baptized into the church and into the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans that where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty, there's freedom, there is life. And he also said, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have life. Now, this is where it gets a little bit disconcerting for some of us, because if we're honest and we ask ourselves, where is the evidence of the Holy Spirit of God being unleashed in 
Because Paul says that's actually, you want to be encouraged, you want to be assured of your salvation. You want to have confidence that you really belong to God. No problem at all. All you got to do is consider ways in which the supernatural power of God is being unleashed in your life and through your life. The expectation of the Bible is that those human beings who have the very Holy Spirit of God living within them will have all kinds of evidence of that day after day after day. Do we? Do I? Folks, are we an authentic church? Are we authentic believers? Because if we are, this is the norm. The Holy Spirit just doesn't hover on the edges of our life. He's been unleashed in us. And that's where we come to our next word. Because in verse 8, Jesus made this great promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And how do we experience that power? Well, if you're truly believe, you're a true believer, you've been baptized in. But then we remember this important command where Paul says to us, to all believers, to the Ephesian believers and to us, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, there are stories in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, but certainly in the New Testament, where we read of Peter and Paul and others who are filled with the Holy Spirit and some dramatic thing happens in them or through them. Here it is described to us as a command which we are to submit ourselves to. And I love, actually, how it's set uh, across from this idea of drunkenness. Now, first of all, uh, we'll just get this out of the way. Scripture forbids drunkenness, right? Scripture doesn't forbid the use of alcohol. It certainly forbids drunkenness, and in the book of Proverbs, we actually find some really stern warnings against or about the use of alcohol. The Bible doesn't forbid the use of alcohol. It forbids drunkenness. And what is drunkenness? Drunkenness is when we give ourselves over to alcohol in such a way that it begins to control us. We lose control of who we are, who we normally would be. Our personality might change. Our behavior might change. In other words, don't give yourself over to the power of wine. But instead, give yourself over to the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the teaching here. It sets up one against the other. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't be under the influence of wine. Don't put yourself under the power of alcohol. Instead, put yourself under the influence and under the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? It means that if I go day after day after day and I am never filled with the Holy Spirit, the problem is not with the Holy Spirit. The problem is that I am not filling my heart with the expectation that the Holy Spirit would empower me or I'm not living day by day with the understanding and the awareness of my desperate need for the Holy Spirit to empower me. And therefore, I don't head into my day, start my day with any kind of expectation of God, I need you. 
I might sing those words, God, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, but I don't actually believe them and I don't actually live them because if I go into my day or into a difficult circumstance with that awareness of how needy I am and I'm literally asking God, oh, God, would you fill me with your spirit? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. If we never see that happen, the problem is not with the Holy Spirit. The problem is somehow with our own hearts where we have capped the bottle and we have said, I don't need you. I'm doing fine. I have no expectation for you to come. I don't think I need you to come and fill me. I'm just living my life. Hey, and by the way, if our great desire in life is just to live my life, and God, don't, don't rock my boat, just let me do what I want to do. Paul described that as living like mere men or mere human beings. That's what he said to the Corinthian church. You're behaving like mere mortals. Do you know what he meant by that? He meant that if we're followers of Jesus, we shouldn't act like mere mortals because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill us and to empower us and to change us. We're going to see now the power of God unleashed through his Holy Spirit. But the first question I want us to consider is, are we filled? Are we ever filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I know, I know some of us are probably sitting here and, and we're just simply thinking, <clears throat> okay, that's, I believe what you're saying. I have no idea how to do that. And I've, I think I've just described to you the way I understand it. And, and it's this. Let me just try to put it into a few points. First of all, filled with, you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number one. Are you on God's agenda or yours? Have you gotten out of bed this morning to do what you want to do or to do what God wants you to do? That's the first issue. If you have no heart to, do, to, to say what Jesus said, not my will but yours be done, you will not be full of the Holy Spirit. Number one. Number two, do you recognize your need? Do you recognize your weakness? You recognize that apart from this Holy Spirit, you can't even live the Christian life. I'll never forget the first time I heard someone say that. It is impossible to live the Christian life. Amen. I figured out that's true. Through many, many mistakes and many hard days, I've come to realize that's true. It is only in the Holy Spirit that we can live the Christian life. And so the second thing is this sense of weakness, this awareness that I can't even obey God or love God or do the things that God wants me to do on my own. And so I have this tremendous sense of need. And then that need, as I set myself on God's agenda and I recognize my weakness, what's the third thing? A desperate cry for help. God, I want to do your will. I can't do your will on my own. Would you fill me with your strength to enable me to live as you would have me live? That's the third thing. Just ask. And then the fourth thing, I'll throw this one in. Faith. Do you actually believe that God can do it? Do you actually believe? Do you trust him? That what he said he will do, he will do? So I'll add that on top. Number one, on God's agenda or yours? Number two, recognize your weakness? Number three, ask God for help. Number four, trust him to do it. For me, that in a nutshell is, and I'm not nearly filled with the Spirit as often as I ought to be, and my family's here to attest to that, but this is what God has taught me about how this can happen. Okay, so if we're full of the Spirit, we get to experience this. Jesus said, you will receive power 
And we know, by the way, the book of Acts makes it so clear that this power wasn't just unleashed on the 11 disciples, it was unleashed on all the believers. We know later in, in Acts chapter 2, it's, it's all of the believers. It wasn't just the 11 who spoke in other languages, all of them. And it wasn't just the apostles who did miracles. We learn about these guys who became literally servants in the church in Acts chapter 6. Guys who were going to help take care of the widows. And those guys, Stephen and Philip, became some of the most powerful and spiritual believers in those early days. Why? Because the power was available to all. Let me show you the Greek word that's used for power here. This is the word that's translated power in English. Well, I kind of gave away what I was going to say, right? You can kind of tell uh, what this word means and the English word that we get from this Greek word is dynamite. This is the power that's available to us in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. This is the power of God. So I know it's kind of convicting, but I just got to go back to this question again and ask us, is there any evidence of God's power at work in us, the dynamite of God, the dynamite of the Spirit. We have been baptized into the Spirit. Is there any evidence that the Spirit is filling us and empowering us? I want us to just think for a moment. What would be some examples of how the power of God is unleashed in us and through us? In fact, I want you to help all of us out here for a few moments. And I want you to consider what are some examples of ways that the power of God is unleashed in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. Can you think of any examples? Okay. That's, that's a great place to start. Because you know what happens to me is when I have spiritual victories that have only come about in my life because of the power of God, I puff out my chest and I revel in my victory and I want to make sure everyone knows what a great guy I am and immediately I've gone from being filled with the spirit to being filled with the flesh so yeah humility great what else fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience many of us have it memorized but if I were to ask you or you were to ask me so how do we actually do that how do we actually live by the fruit of the spirit we would many of us have no idea but it goes back to those four things I mentioned. The fruit of the Spirit is the work of God. That's why it's not called Gary's fruit or Les's fruit. It's, it's the Spirit's fruit. He's the one that produces it. So I go back to this thing about the agenda. God's agenda for me is that I would be loving and joyful and patient. All of those things. Do I recognize my weakness? I can't be any of those things apart from God. Do I ask God to make those fruit appear in my life? And do I trust him to do it? Through the Spirit. Anything else? Amen. Amen. So to take on the form of a servant is to become like Jesus. And I would argue that in a, in a very real way, I see the Holy Spirit as kind of acting, acting like the servant of the Godhead. That's why I see the Holy Spirit hovering on the face of the waters, just saying, God, let me go. Let me, let me serve. Let me make. Let me do. Let me work. And so service is always um, a picture of God's character. So amen. What else? Amen. So when we see the gospel in action. You know what? It's interesting. And we could go on and, and do a number of things here. But if you can go through the book of Acts with this question. 
let me list all of the, or what are all the miracles in the book of Acts? And there's all kinds of them, right? I mean, <clears throat> go to the end, and, and, and Paul gets bitten by this venomous snake, and he shakes it off in the fire, and he's fine, and, and uh, people are, Peter raises uh, Dorcas up from the dead by God's power, and people are speaking in other, I mean, there's all kinds of things, but then, then go back and ask your question, how is the supernatural power of God evident in more ordinary ways? And we see those everywhere as well, starting with Peter, who a couple of months earlier ran from Jesus and ran from his, uh, those who were arresting him and denied that he knew Jesus. But now in Acts chapter 2, he stands up and boldly says to the same people, you killed your Messiah. And he preaches the gospel and he sees the birth of the church. Transformation. Transformation is the supernatural power of God unleashed by the Holy Spirit into our lives. So I ask us, how have we seen God change us? How are we being transformed? And then we can think about things like courage, which we saw last week when the believers were threatened and, and were on the verge of being persecuted for their faith. And they come together and say, oh God, please take away the pain. No, they say, God, make us bold. Help us to be bold witnesses. And God, by his grace, answers the prayer and gives them courage and boldness to speak, to get on his agenda. And there's all kinds of things. How did the church have unity in a, in a time when Jews and Gentiles were being baptized into the same spirit and into the same churches? People who had always hated each other. Now, brothers and sisters, we think it's tough in covid Imagine being in a church like that. Imagine being in a church where you were a slave and your master sat across from you in the next pew. Well, I don't know if they had pews, but he was right there as your brother, not your master, but your brother. How did they do church and how did they have unity when there were slaves and masters sitting side by side in the same body? I'll tell you why. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to minimize miraculous things. Next week, we're going to hear Rick and Barb Chernuski share with us on Thanksgiving Sunday about the experience they've had, which they really believe, and I think all of us could agree, is very miraculous. When the family had been called to be at the side of, of Rick, when the doctors assumed he would not be with them, us, for much longer, and now he is here with us and among us. God can do those things and we can ask God to do those things and we can expect God to do those things and we can look for, in fact, James 5 says, if any among you are sick, let them call for the elders of the church and the elders of the church should, should anoint that person with oil and pray for God's healing. I've been part of many, many, I've had that done for me and I've been part of many prayer meetings for others and sometimes we've seen God uh, miraculously help and cure sometimes using the medical experts uh, and other times where he hasn't and the person has remained sick or the person has died. We trust that God is on the throne and he's the one who decides. We submit to his agenda. But we trust if he wants to do a miracle, we'll ask him for it. We'll trust him. If he chooses not to, he's still on the throne and we're still trusting. And we're still looking and expecting all of that supernatural power of God to be unleashed in us and through us? Are we seeing transformation in our lives? 
Are we seeing victory over sin? Some, for some of us, perhaps anger is just a, it, it's just a vice in our lives and we're struggling with anger over and over. Do we believe that God, by his Holy Spirit, can transform us, that we can see the fruit of the Spirit of patience? Are we seeing God use us in the lives of others? Because when we're on his agenda, he's always saying, go, go. Find somebody to love, find somebody to serve. Might be a believer, might be an unbeliever. I think we all should have both. Someone who doesn't yet know Jesus and someone who does know Jesus and we come alongside and be the hands and feet of Jesus to them and help them grow closer to God and further on in their faith. We sing the power of God. You know what we do, folks? We hear these announcements at church and we, we hear, well, we, we'd love to have Sunday school, but we need Sunday school teachers. And so we do a little self-assessment. We say, well, I'm not sure it's my gift. I certainly don't feel like it. I don't feel excited about it. Don't feel much passion about it. And we shrug our shoulders and say, nope, not for me. Or we might simply say, I, <clears throat> I don't feel comfortable in that area of ministry. And I think we do not only the Lord, but ourselves a tremendous disservice. Because to follow in the steps of Jesus is not to follow in the steps of comfort. When we assess our ability to serve God based solely on what we think we can do, like don't we realize how backwards that is? The Holy Spirit has come to enable us to do what we can't do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be passionate about things. God hasn't given us skills and abilities, and I understand all of that. That's part of it for sure. But we must not limit ourselves to serving God and serving his church and serving our community based on what we feel comfortable with because we will be so far from the will of God so many times in our lives because God calls us out again and again. Get out of your comfort zone. Come follow me. Let me show you what I can do through you when you trust me. So yeah, there's all kinds of needs here in the church and there's lots of opportunities to serve God, but we have to be willing to, to follow Jesus even when he taps us on the shoulder and nudges us towards something that we don't feel comfortable with. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us. Last word, witnesses. Love this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And notice the one thing, the first thing and the one thing that Jesus describes here when he's describing this empowered life of the Spirit. Witness. Witness. And I will argue again and again and again. There are many, many facets to the Christian life, many aspects to which we need to engage in, areas of service and caring for our family and doing our job well and and uh, being good parents and being a good spouse and all of that is important in the Christian life. But I would argue that scripture brings us again and again and again to this one truth. That to be on the agenda of God will always lead us to this place of being his witnesses. Again, this is something that many of us excuse ourselves from based on the fact that we don't feel comfortable. Or we might say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. 
But Jesus says, you'll receive power. And what is his, it seems, primary concern for the use of that power? It's in this. Be my witnesses. I love this because this makes it so much more simple. If we use the word evangelist, hey, you need to be an evangelist, then we suddenly think, well, I've got to know I've got to know all the theology and I've got to be able to answer all the hard questions and I've got to know apologetics and I've got to know how to start a conversation and steer a conversation. But in this verse, Jesus just says this, just be my witnesses. It's, it's a word that's used in court, right? It's a word that's used to describe someone who has seen something. So they're called into the court of law to be a witness to whether someone did or did not commit a crime. And so we are called to be witnesses for Jesus. And by the way, when we live out this powerful life of the Holy Spirit, when we are experiencing the life of God in us, which is what the Christian life is meant to be, we have all kinds of things to be witnesses about. All kinds of things to testify about. For example, sometimes some of us have uh, one or two people who come and knock on our door and maybe they've got a big case. I guess that's isn't happening as much anymore right now at least and sometimes we think well I've got to be able to answer all the questions I've got to be able to ask them the right questions I've got to I've got to be able to debate the theology here and no I would say no what you really need to do is be a witness and say can I tell you what's happened to me 10 years ago I I, I didn't I wasn't religious at all and I didn't know anything about Jesus but I was introduced to Jesus and I was introduced to this good news of salvation and and I repented of my sin and I trusted in Jesus Christ and my life has been turned upside down. And I'm seeing God change my life and I'm, I'm seeing prayers answered and just testify to the reality of your relationship with Christ. That is far more powerful and effective than arguing about theological issues. Be a witness. And see, the more we walk in the power of God, the more things we will have to testify about. And of course, the more boldness and courage we will have to do this thing. So who is it in your life? As I said already, I think all of us should have someone that we're praying for, someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone that we're praying for, someone that we're looking to have conversation with, uh, someone that perhaps maybe we're inviting to church, someone that we are asking God to use us to point them to Jesus. We've been talking about this, this discipleship pathway. And I would say for all of us who are followers of Jesus, as we're following Jesus, here's a simple thing. Have someone on the left of the cross that you're praying for and witnessing to. Have someone on the right side of the cross who you're encouraging in their faith and helping them to grow uh, in their faith. Folks, all of this, of course, requires God. We recognize our weakness, as I've been saying this morning, and we recognize how desperately we need God. And We did these messages last week and this week uh, to, together on purpose. Last week we talked about prayer, and this week we talk about the supernatural. So I just simply want to circle back to that and say, if we want to see a supernatural God active in our congregation and in our lives, then let's not skip this wonderful opportunity to pray and to ask God there are a number of opportunities available to us and there's going to be some new ones which I want to show you about. Uh, some of you are involved in small groups and some of our small groups are going to be starting very soon. If you're not in a small group, uh, 
this is a wonderful opportunity to pray with brothers and sisters in Christ. We've encouraged our leaders not to do that in a way that would embarrass anyone. We don't go around the circle and, oh no, it's coming to me. Uh, but as you're comfortable, you have the opportunity to pray out loud with other believers. And if not, you're not comfortable, that's okay too. Um, Paul Hoffman has been hosting a Zoom prayer group during the pandemic. And uh, this is wide open for anyone who would like to participate. That's Wednesdays at 7.30. Uh, so uh, if you're interested in being part of that prayer group, you can talk to Paul. We'd like to begin a, a new opportunity, Sunday mornings at 10.30 in the cafe, that new room at the back of the church on this main level. Um, and I um, uh, am expecting that uh, various elders will be there on Sunday mornings at 10.30 to host you and to pray with you. Pray for God's work during our Sunday services, but also for his revival work in our church and in our lives. Andreas and I, I threw Wednesday up, Andreas, is that okay? Um, Andreas and I would like to host a men's prayer time on Wednesday mornings at 7, yes, a.m. So I know some of you uh, have an early start for work. If you can come even for half an hour, uh, Andreas and or myself will be here and we would love to pray with you. And then the women's prayer group. This is something that Lynn is uh, certainly excited about uh, from a few conversations I've had with her lately. So if you're a woman and would like to be part of a uh, perhaps a more intentional time of prayer with other women, then please talk to Lynn. You will receive power. Many of us in this room have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, may we be filled with the Holy Spirit. May we experience this power of God as the Spirit is unleashed into our lives, and may that power enable us to be his witnesses. Uh, Les is going to come and we're going to sing a, a really appropriate song, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And then Glenn is going to come and close in prayer and give us a little story of how this has been, God has been working in his life. So, yeah, thank you for being seated. So this morning I'm, I just talked to Gary. This is fairly short, spontaneous, but um, little did I know I was going to share this, but Thursday I had an experience with a very common experience and I want to just make this clear that we often make being a witness a very complicated thing so Thursday afternoon I was in at Canadian Tire with my company uniform on and whenever I go to Canadian Tire I get asked could you help me with this could you help me with this it's almost frustrating actually but anyways in short I was actually knew what I was looking for. Then I went to another aisle just to quick check something. It was for work. And uh, a man came up to me and says, can you help me? I said, well, I don't work here. <laughs> oh. He looked at my label. He says, well, maybe you can still help me. <laughs> okay. Anyways, in the sh I'm going to give you the short version here so that you can home go home and have lunch. But anyways, bottom line was, I said, well, what, what do you need help with? He says, well, I need a certain this size of foam and it's just so hard to find anything like this because home hardware doesn't have it Canadian Tire doesn't have it and I really need it and I says well I think I might be able to help you I says if you come with me in my pickup truck and come down to our shop I might be able to help you oh sir that's amazing I'm new in Elmira I don't know he said, where's Elmira Truck Service? I said, down by the A&W. 
I don't know where A&W is. <laughs> really? Anyways, I'll stop there. So anyways, I, he gets in my truck, he's got his mask on, we drive to the shop, and he starts telling me a few little things about himself. So he stands inside my shop door at the back. I go look for what I thought we might have, and we didn't. So I said, Lord, I'd like to help this guy out. And you know how God does little, little tricks for you? Not tricks, but anyways, I went upstairs, and I found this piece of material, and I brought it down to him, and I said, would this work for you? Oh, that's awesome. That's better than foam. He says, but it's too big. I says, I got a skill saw. I'll cut it exactly the size you want. And then when that all happened, he was so happy. I says, I just want you to know that I'm not crazy, but I know Jesus. And he makes a difference in my life. And in short, so I said, do you know how to walk back to where you live? He said, I'm not sure. And he says, I have really bad ankles, so that would be a long walk. I says, well, get into the truck, and I'll take you close to where you live. He says, well, I want to tell you some more while we drive. Anyways, long story short, this man, according to what he told me, had great losses in his life, lost his wife, lost his property, and ended up in Elmira. Still a lot of questions there, but I had the privilege to point him to Jesus. And you know what he said? I grew up in a very religious home on the East Coast. All my siblings were named after saints. My name is St. John. I didn't laugh, but I told him it's Jesus that makes the difference. I just want to tell you, sometimes simple little things can lead you to sharing and making somebody think about Jesus. I'm saying that not because I'm great at it, but I want you to know as an elder, I believe Wallenstein can make a difference in this community by being filled by the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit. And I am not there every day, folks. Don't beat yourself up. But the desire that Gary spoke about, every one of us as followers of Jesus, we need to live on the edge. A little bit like when you watch the chase at close to the end of the game, and it's breathtaking every move. Let's live Jesus. Let Jesus live in our lives the same way, on the edge, and his name will be glorified right? Time is short. I'm convinced time is short. The less you serve yourself, by the way, the greater joy you will have. So I trust this will be an encouragement to you this week. Ask God for direct things. Say, help me to be awake. I never knew, I had no clue that I would be driving a guy down the street and him yapping at me a mile a minute telling me about his life. But it was kind of crazy. But it was kind of fun. It was kind of scary. But afterwards, I said, God, thanks for showing up. <laughs> Anyways, let's pray. And I pray that the Spirit of God would touch you, that you'd want to be filled with the Spirit. I am not always. That's not my point here this morning. Father, I come to you, and I just, again, thank you for the fact that sometimes uh, we have to wait. But help us to also be very engaged in the fact that as children of yours, you have given us the Holy Spirit as our helper, our guide, our comfort, the one who illuminates our lives and our minds so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus now. 
Not when we're 15, not when we're 25, not when we're 60. Now, Lord, help us to see today is the day, not tomorrow. So again, thank you for being present here this morning. May you give us all a heart that's full of gladness and thankfulness for the mighty work that Jesus, your son, accomplished on the cross on our behalf. And all the people said, amen. Enjoy your dinner. We're seven minutes late. Sorry.